This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I am very honored to be here and be invited. I've been a guest many times at this lecture, but not a lecturer, so this is really a lot of fun for me. I'm very much hoping to engage you in some provocative thoughts tonight. Uh, I'll see how provocative they are. I suspect I may be preaching to the choir, but we'll see what happens here. I am absolutely giddy tonight, and I went crazy with slides. Let's see how I can pull this off. I know the economy is crashing. I know that it rained today. But this is a fabulous time for food. This is really an unprecedented time for food. And so I'm trying to ride on Michael Pollan's coattails and see what I can get away with here. And let's see what you'll let me get away with. So again, the idea is we have this unprecedented number of food choices. And we have to pick every single day. And it probably drives you nuts trying to pick from all the choices we have. How many different kinds of eggs could there possibly be? There really are a huge number of choices. And you know, it's really hard to figure out what those things are. What the heck is a cage-free egg? Here are some cage-free chickens, and they certainly don't look very happy. Here's some free-range eggs. Uh, chickens, this is what you think. They're, they're out grazing in the pasture, but in reality, they don't really have to be in the pasture. They have to have access to outside, which could be a slab of concrete. So it's not a sure bet if you get free-range eggs. And You've got omega-3s and lots of things these days. They really do come from fish. That's where they all started. They're really in fish, just all naturally, all by themselves. But we're sticking them in eggs by feeding, what are we feeding the chickens, fish? We're probably feeding them flax, I suspect. And flax really isn't the same as fish. They both have omega-3s, but they're not the same. And if you want a whole lecture on docosahexaenoic acid and icosapentaenoic acid, that'll be later in the week. An announcement will be sent out. We're even putting it in orange juice. Why would you want fish in your orange juice? But apparently, apparently it mixes well. Some um, food aberrations there of sticking omega-3s in everything. Or getting things out. So maybe we put things in, maybe we take things out. So here's trans fats. You know, I just went to some meeting with the Sarah Lee folks and a, a panel of experts about fat. They were happy with lard till we told them lard was killing people. So they got the lard out and they put in the polyunsaturated fats the hydrogenated fats until we told them that was killing people because we told them to put it in. And now they're taking that out and looking for the next thing, right? And so the odd thing is, now if you don't have trans fats, all of a sudden you're a health food. So we have chicken nibblers that are health foods and we have donuts that are health foods just because they don't have trans fats. And this is part of the reason that it's such a challenge to go shopping. Which message is more compelling? The presence of omega-3, the absence of trans fats. And I know you have questions, really good questions, but I am trying really hard and I'm feeling a, really, I'm feeling a bit guilty because I don't have great answers for you. So just to let the cat out of the bag, I don't have fabulous answers for you, but I'm going to try to provoke a few thoughts here. I'm guessing you have questions about those omega-3s and omega-6s and the ratio and the 
the N6 and the omega-6 and the N3, like Kevin Costner's totally confused here. And you know, Oprah was here visiting, and she didn't really get a chance to come up and ask me this, but I bet, I really bet she was wondering about the whole calcium vitamin D thing. You know, how much calcium? I gave a lecture one time to um, some Stanford women graduates. I asked them how many of them were taking calcium. They all were. I asked them how much they were taking. Nobody agreed, and nobody knew why they were taking the amount they were taking. That was stunning. And now they say vitamin D we should take at a level that's above the level they used to say was the upper limit. Phew! That is confusing. Okay, and you know, Arnold's had a tough time with the budget, so he hasn't had time to come by and ask me this, but I'm sure he's wondering if he can keep up those, those muscles with, you know, with what? Can he do it with soybeans? Does it really have to be beef? I know he's dying to ask me. And you know, the one I get the most is how can I lose weight? Everybody wants to ask me how to lose weight because that seems to be the big diet fascination. And I, I have a couple answers, but I really don't have all the answers. So let me be a little defensive here. I really wish I had better answers for you, but I want to show you how tough my job is. You should feel really sorry for me, because I'm going to show you how tough my job is. So please consider the following. Uh, one perspective of nutrition is nutrients, these magical things that Michael Pollan says you cannot see. They're there. They're chemical compounds, they're atoms, whatever it is. Here's a couple molecules. I love to draw molecules. You may not like molecules, so I'm going to make your day and get rid of them in just a minute. But there's a couple friendly molecules from various foods that could be good for you. And one way is to give them to rats or put them in a cell. And another way is to try to feed people. That's what we do. We do soy studies, garlic studies, vegetarian studies, things like that. But we still tend to make them rather reductionist. It's not a whole diet. It might be one food at a time. And and the food perspective is one, but really, you eat a whole pattern of diets. You might eat like a vegetarian, or an Asian, or a Mediterranean, or a Latin American. That's a hard one. It's, it's really hard to get the NIH to give me money to study a type of diet, because it's so confusing. That's really hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on. So let me switch perspectives now. So here's the next approach. Acute deficiency diseases, this is something that we are really good at, OK? So let's toot our own horn here. We really know all about scurvy. Okay, you ready for this? We know that it's collagen that holds the teeth in your gums. And we know to make the collagen work, you have to post-translationally hydroxylate the proline and lysine residues in that protein. And to do that, you need a metalloenzyme that has iron in it. And it won't work unless the iron is in its reduced state, which is what vitamin C does. Okay, pretty clear? Vitamin C, metalloenzyme, post-translational hydroxylation, lysine, proline, collagen, teeth stay in your gums. Okay? It's great. The, the nice thing about this is it comes on you know, fairly quickly in months, and it can resolve in months. So we can play around with a dose. We can see if women need more than men, or big people need more than smaller people. And we got that one down. We know how to get rid of it. OK, or anemia. This one is fabulous. Anemia is really easy to figure out because, again, the onset is fairly quick. I got some nice big red, red blood cells on the left or tiny pale ones on the right. And we know all about this. We know that your red blood cells start in the bone marrow. And then they migrate out, and they start dividing. And when they filled up to 20% with hemoglobin, they stop dividing. And then they fill all the way up to 34%. But if you're anemic and you don't have enough iron, you never get to 20%. They keep dividing and dividing and dividing again. And they never fill up because there's not enough iron. And so you end up real tiny little pale cells, and you're anemic. And there's more to it than that because you can use a folate deficiency or a B12 deficiency and get macrocytic anemia. This is called microcytic anemia. Nonetheless. It's acute. You can resolve it quickly. I can figure out women need more than men if they're having their menstrual cycle. 
you know, and we can, get, we can identify it, we can measure it with hemoglobin levels and treat it. Much like a thyroid problem uh, with iodine. So here's this woman with this huge goiter in her neck. That big old lump is that thyroid gland filling up with this protein that we call thyroglobulin. Okay, so here's another fun mechanistic one that we love the mechanisms when we understand how they work. There's this protein in the thyroid gland that makes thyroid hormone. And it does it when you grab iodine that's circulating around and you stick it on the tyrosine residues or sidebar, side chains, and that protein. And then they hop on top of one another and they break off and you have thyroid hormone. If you don't have enough, you make tons of this protein so that you're really efficient grabbing whatever comes along and that's what causes the goiter. You see the goiter, you give them the iodine, the goiter goes away. Life is good again, okay? Those are acute deficiency diseases. How many of you have had scurvy? How many of you have had a goiter? So we're really good at the acute deficiency diseases, but, but really that's not the main nutritional topic these days. It's usually chronic disease. So the issues that we face that we think are very much related to nutrition, the top four of the, four of the top 10 killers are heart disease, cancer, stroke, and diabetes. Those are really frustrating to figure out. Those, aren't, those don't come on quickly or resolve quickly. You know, if, if you really want to help me with that, I have this whole clever soy, ginkgo, garlic concoction. And to prove my theory, it would be really nice if this half of the room would eat that for the rest of their life. <laughs> rest of your life, that's OK, right? And this half not, and eat the placebo something for the rest of your life. And if you're not going to volunteer for that, it's hard to prove my point, because I don't know if the cancer is really going to set in or the cardiovascular disease is going to set in. So we end up getting stuck with data like this. We compare a bunch of countries that already eat differently. And we stick them on a graph and we say, ah, I know, I'll, I'll come up with a cholesterol saturated fat uh, ratio or index or scale. And the ones you get the most cholesterol and saturated fat clearly have the most heart disease. So it must be that that thing causes heart disease and you should not eat so much. Oh, get rid of that. But you know, sadly, it works for telephone poles, TVs, all kinds of things, protein, animal protein. I could put lots of stuff in this graph and you'd get the same curve. So, it's not very compelling that that's what caused it. And maybe that's just what's associated with it. Plus, it drives us nuts when we see somebody like Finland and France who have almost the same score, but a five-fold difference in the rate of heart disease. So if this is really such a compelling factor, how could you have almost the same cholesterol-saturated fat index and have a five-fold different rate of heart disease? Seems to take some of the compelling nature out of it. So we get stuck in the way we study these things. So here I am being defensive and whining a little bit. I get a little stuck because to get funded by the NIH and to try to help you out and do a rigorous study and see if it really is going to help you or not, not in a rat and not in a cell, but real live humans, I never really get to study the whole diet. I get to study one food or a molecule in a food. You know, I never really get to wait to see who lives or dies. I pretty much do something short term. I try to lower your cholesterol, your weight, your insulin, your blood pressure. Um, part of it is just that's, that's the kind of thing that gets funded. Part of it is I need to do it that way. If I don't finish the study and publish it, I won't get promoted and I won't give to give any more talks. <laughs> so I, I tend to go for the shorter term studies. Maybe I'll do longer ones later. Uh, and then what we do is we wait for a big drug company to come along and say, wow, you lowered cholesterol with your food and we gave this massive, great cholesterol lowering drug and it saved lives. So we should assume that your food would save lives too. We're not going to do that study, but we would assume that would happen too. And that's a big leap of faith. That doesn't necessarily work that way. So what we really end up studying is a lot of these chronic disease risk factors. 
and it, I, I spend a lot of time doing this. It's better than rats for me. It's better than cells. Um, here's actually the one that uh, Nora was describing. This is the one the whole window dressing was about. Low-fat diet with lots of junk food, convenient, low-fat products versus my favorite vegetarian recipes. Lentil soup that I threw some cheese on, whole wheat bread that I put some butter on, and a big spinach salad that I put some egg in. Now, why did I have those qualifiers for each one? According to the reductionist approach of science, I was trying very hard to match the saturated fat, match the cholesterol, match the calories, and match the total fat. So I had two diets that were the same in many things, but different in fiber and antioxidants and lots of other stuff. And the hypothesis here was, there's a lot of things that lower cholesterol that you need to include in your diet in, in, uh, in contrast to just avoiding saturated fat. So if we have the same amount of fat and calories and cholesterol and things, but they're different in other ways, we'll double the cholesterol lowering, which we did. We doubled the LDL cholesterol lowering. The convenience food low-fat diet did it, but our plant-based one did it even more. We fed all these people. 125 people got all their food for a month, free food for a month. Well, you kind of had to show up every day and pick up the food, so it was, uh, it was a little bit of a hassle. So this got published in a great journal. It was very reductionist. It was pretty relevant because it was real food, but really, it's a horrible study. Okay? It's a horrible study because we fed all these people all their food when they were done. Nobody knew how to cook or where to shop for it or where to get it. It's also a horrible study because I ruined my favorite recipes. I had to stick all the butter and cheese and egg in there so I could match it so they'd give me the money so it was scientifically rigorous and reductionist. I think I could have had a bigger impact without doing that. But I'm held to that. And it was, uh, I'm still proud of it, but it had some limitations. And here's the one that I had. This was probably the most satisfying study to run and the most frustrating study to report at the end. This was the coolest garlic study ever done. 200 people for six months got free lunch. We made 30,000 heart-healthy garlic sandwiches and handed them out to 200 people for six months. And there were placebo sandwiches, and there were real sandwiches. Okay? So the real sandwich said garlic in the condiment, and the placebo sandwich said no garlic in the condiment. And it wasn't hard to tell which one you got, but that part wasn't <laughs> blind. And then there were real pills, and there were not so real pills. Um, and so you either got the placebo-placebo, or one kind of pill, or another kind of pill, or real garlic in sandwiches, which we thought should be the gold standard. Lots of these pills say they lower cholesterol. I don't think many of them do, but we really thought real garlic would work. So for a million and a half of your taxpayer dollars, we put these 200 people through 10 blood draws so that we could, you know, we wanted to make sure we had a blood draw every month so we could see when this effect kicked in and when it went away. And so here's the stunning results that we came up with. Can you see the big threshold effect there and the plateau and the time course and all that? Man, I was all ready to do the sautéed garlic study, the microwaved garlic study, and I got cut short right here. I can't even go anywhere from this. Nothing happened, not any month in the whole study. You know, to a certain extent, I was a little relieved. I thought maybe Gordon Beer's garlic fries sales would peak after our study came out, showing that it worked, and that would nullify the whole benefit of the garlic. Uh, but really, what I would have preferred to have done is the hummus study or the Asian veggie stir-fry study. And I actually bet I keep my cholesterol down with garlic. And I, I would say I would do that by eating things that are rich in garlic, that are full of fiber and all kinds of nutrients. And I like hummus because it's full of garlic. And I like the stir-fry because I put a bunch of garlic in there. But that's often too confusing for us to study, too many factors. 
So I don't usually get to study it that way. So if you consider there's these three levels of foods to look at, and there's these different ways we can approach diseases, I can tell you that we are great at nutrients and acute deficiency disease. And then as we venture farther away from these into more holistic foods or more chronic diseases, we know less and less and less because it's really just hard to design a study to show that kind of thing. You'd probably like to know which foods or which type of diet to eat to prevent heart disease and cancer, and we really don't know, okay? And don't hold your breath, because we're not going to know tomorrow either, and we're not going to know in a week or a month or a year. So really what you're going to get is, since we don't know, we try to give you the best advice we can today. We get a whole panel of experts together, and we tell you, eat more vegetables, right? And it's hard to get headlines that way. It's pretty boring to just say again and again eat more vegetables. And we all kind of agree on that, honestly, us health professionals. The media has a little fun with us, and they take some of our studies and blow them out of proportion. But really, we pretty much think you ought to eat more vegetables. It's not very exciting. But, but I, was supposed to, I was thinking I was supposed to come here today to help you choose what to eat today or tomorrow. You know? So should it be the vegetarian thing? I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, until we really have all the definitive studies, which are hundreds of years away, actually. Uh, I don't really think the vegetarian thing's going to do it, because uh, this is how my oldest son eats sometimes. <laughs> he is a vegetarian. And I will qualify that my second oldest son is here in the front row, and he eats way better than this, okay? So this is the older one. He's a monochromatic vegetarian. Monochromatic being white bread, white cheese, white tortillas, white... <laughs> He loves being a vegetarian. He's an ethical vegetarian, but he's really not a very healthy vegetarian, although I, I, think, he's, I think he's moving in a more positive direction. So that's really not going to be the solution to this omnivore's dilemma of figuring out how you're going to eat. Really, the vegetarian thing is wearing very thin. So organic seemed like a way to go. Organic, maybe that would work. So look at these gorgeous organic heirloom tomatoes. Note, they're not perfectly round. They're lumpy. Oh, but don't they look really good? Way better than the perfectly round tomatoes that cut up that were underripe and got stuffed into that iceberg lettuce salad, right? So, oh, organic, maybe that's the way to go. And they've made it easy for us. We've got these little bags of baby carrots. They've already got the baby lettuce chopped and washed for us. We can just do that right away. And this is fabulous. So the organic acreage is growing and growing and growing. This is one of the few segments in the food market that's doubling. It's really encouraging. Right? And so this is what my wife Melissa brought home the other day, just because it was so amusing to look at these very organic snickety snacks for kids. They only use unrefined cane sugar in their cookies. And so I thought I would write down the ingredients for you, because it's too hard to see on a tiny little label. It's pretty much organic, 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 and organic. And I don't know if this is going to confuse you, but really you ought to try to look at the first ingredient, which is sugar with eight, nine words. Is that crazy? How many words does it take to say sugar? I know it's organic, but the first ingredient is sugar. It may warm the cuckles of your heart that it's organic, whole, unbleached, unrefined, evaporated sugar cane juice, but it's sugar. It's just organic sugar. Or this one, low-fat organic yogurt. You can't really find any whole-fat organic yogurt anymore, can you? I mean, it's all, it all seems to be low-fat, which I really don't buy into anymore at all. So I thought I would write some of the ingredients down for you. The plain has three ingredients. The organic has way more than three. They didn't just add raspberries. They added a bunch of stuff. The ingredient above the raspberries was the sugar again, organic evaporated cane juice. And here's what the calorie breakdown looks like on the label. The raspberry yogurt has 50% more calories than the plain yogurt. 
and it's really pretty much all sugar. Okay, I know it's more flavorful, but it's really all sugar. So I'm not stupid, I got a PhD, I went to the farmer's market, I bought some raspberries and I mixed them into the yogurt. So here's my yogurt, way more filling. Now I get the eight ounces of yogurt and the raspberries on top. I know they're fresh. Okay, so compared to that other one, I did the nutrient profile again, and even adding a half a cup of raspberries, I still don't get quite to the calorie level of the other one. And I do get some more carbs and sugar because they're naturally in raspberries. I don't come close to the carbs and sugar in the other one. Plus, I got four grams of fiber. How did they add raspberries to their yogurt and get no fiber? That is really frightening. <laughs> There's something kind of scary about that. All right, and this is coming soon if you haven't seen it yet. Naturally made, same great taste, fair trade, naturally produced health drink. Okay, because that's what moving, organic is moving, or you're loving it. Because all the, all the McDonald's food is going to be organic too, because that's what's selling these days. So really, you know, organic is not working. We are not going to just buy our way into better health. You can't just go look for the organic label. You're going to have to look a little closer than that. So this is one of my favorite quotes from Michael Pollan's next book, In Defense of Food. If you can't read it because in your back, basically, the human animal is adapted to and apparently can thrive on an extraordinary range of different diets, but the Western diet, however you define it, does not seem to be one of them. Okay? <laughs> so that prompted me to, to consider things like this. In my nutrition science, it seems like this narrow range of things I should be telling you to eat, when in fact the Tarahumara Indian diet is almost entirely carbohydrate, and they do fine on this, unless you saw National Geographic this week, they did a little spread on them and the junk food is working its way into their culture. But their traditional diet was 90% corn and beans and squash. They're ultramarathoners. They're some of the most physically fit people in the world. I think if you're an ultramarathoner, you could probably eat almost anything you want. So that's part of the issue. The native Alaskans don't really have all that much corn around, right? So they're going to eat seal and polar bear and blubber and whale and whatever it is. So they had an incredibly high-fat diet, and they do fine. Lots of omega-3s. Maybe that was it? No, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was kayaking around looking for all those omega-3s. <laughs> I had a Maasai warrior in my class. I had a young Maasai warrior in my undergraduate class, and he confirmed that he drinks blood. He eats, raw, he eats congealed blood. He drinks gallons of raw milk, and he hardly gets any veggies where he comes from. Uh, they walked their flock around all day, and there weren't that many veggies growing. And when there were some fruit uh, that he could see in the trees, by the time he got there, the birds got it first because they saw that it was ripe. So here's a diet that worked, an indigenous diet that was great. Or Australian Aborigines did, did great till they moved to Sydney and got acculturated. So this is a clever study by Karen O'Day uh, back about 20 years ago. Took Aborigines who were diabetic back to the bush, give them a hunter-gatherer life. They lost weight. All their diabetes cleared up. They got off all their meds. Fabulous. I never saw the write-up paper to see if they decided to live in the bush for the rest of their life <laughs> or go back to Sydney and their families and their jobs. I'm guessing it was the latter, but I didn't see the follow-up. Um, and Daphne Miller has written a new book called The Jungle Effect, where she got funded to go around, all around the world and look for more of these kinds of things and figure out what are these indigenous diets that keep people healthy. So in contrast, we have the American diet. This is what we are famous for tracking all over the planet, right? And so the shape of things to come, based on our perspective, is pretty sad and scary. And we really should feel a little ashamed for perpetuating this. 
I'm going to share another perspective of diets with you. So if you haven't seen this book, I'm going to plug some more books. This is called Hungry Planet. A photographer and investigative journalist went to 25 countries and lived with each of 30 families for a week. And it's fabulously dense and rich and full of things and tables in the back. But the most heart-wrenching thing that they did of all was at the end of every week, they got each family to stand beside a week's worth of food, and then they translated it into US dollars. A lot of you have probably seen this on the web. Uh, I'm going to present it with a couple of facts and figures that might make it easier to compare. I'm going to start with Chad. Here's Chad family living in a camp, refugee camp. For a buck 23, this is the food they live on for an entire week. Okay, and for five bucks a week, here's a Bhutan family. Looks like they grew a lot of this stuff their own for five bucks a week. Big family, lots of veggies, lots of smiles. Here's a family in Ecuador, 32 bucks a week. Seems to be a criteria that you have to have a hat in this part of the country. Everybody's got a hat. Then they got lots of great veggies and bags of root vegetables. A Mongolian family, a couple packaged products for the first time show up at 40 bucks a week. Big slabs of beef, some processed bread, lots of eggs. Here's an Egyptian family. I see some orange soda and some Coke in the background, but not much, just a little bit. There's really quite a few veggies there. Here's a Polish family. Now we're really getting into more packaged foods. We're at 150 bucks a week. There's a two-liter bottle of Coke in the background. I see some M&Ms and some other things. And I'm going to stick at 150 just for a minute. So here's a Chinese family at 150. Stacks of Coke, lots of packaged foods. Here's an American family for 150 bucks in that range and lots of breakfast cereal. We are really good at breakfast cereal. And and uh, some fast food Cokes stacked up in the background there. Here's a Mexican family. Now we're moving up to 190 bucks for a week. Count them, there's something like 12 two-liter bottles of Coke in the background of this family. Mexicans drink more Coke per capita than any other population on the planet. I don't know what kind of marketing strategy that is, but. Here's a Kuwait family, 221 bucks a week. Lots of pretty good foods. Cleanest kitchen I ever saw. I think they got. They got some extra help on that one. Here's a British family that's really eaten a bunch of junk. So there is just all kinds of candy bars. And, and up front, you know, it used to be the vegetables that were up front for some of these families. Now it's a lot of packaged foods. 253. Here's an Italian family. I kind of like this one. You know, we're all weirded out about carbs. Look at all the bread they have. And you can see how horrifically overweight all of them are. They're really not. But you know, with Italy, that's where the slow food movement started, right? So they might eat white bread, but they eat it slowly and in normal portions. And look what you can do if you do that, I guess. There's some Coke and some other things. Here's a Japanese family. They don't need a kitchen. They can microwave everything, apparently. A commercial with food in the background. Lots and lots of food in a package there. And here's another American family higher up in the socioeconomic scale. 341 bucks a week, some big growing boys with pizzas and Burger King and McDonald's and Lay's potato chips. And we'll finish off with a German family that is clearly not dehydrated. These folks <laughs> hydrate themselves very well with juice and water and beer and all kinds of things. And we're up to 500. It was a really interesting spectrum. It's a fabulous book. It's really full of some rich stories. I, I would encourage anyone to check this out. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Really intriguing to see what all these folks eat. Well. A lot of this stuff has been getting to me. It's been getting to me. And I, I, I'm, I'm a different person than I was a year ago. I think I've gone through this paradigm shift. 
Uh, a couple things kicked it off. One is Freddie Cronenberg, who's sitting here today, invited me to come to Arizona and give a lecture on uh, a whole food optimal diet. And I said, that's easy. There's tons of stuff on that. And there really wasn't. So I had to make something up on the wing and realize, wow, there's really not a lot of whole food research studies to talk about. And another thing was Deborah Satz on our campus seemed to be bored and needed something to do. So she decided to think up, well, let's have a film and speaker series, which she called The Ethics of Food and the Environment. And so she decided to invite Michael Pollan, Marian Nessel, Peter Singer, show some movies. This was an amazing success. These were fabulous. The venues were packed. It was stunning when I first saw this. I thought, wow, this is really interesting to me. Who's going to show up but me and a couple other geeks? And it wasn't true. These were really powerful speakers and films that resonated with a lot of people. I had no idea how well these topics resonated with so many different people. Because I always do the food and health thing. And I always know there's this other side to it. But what was really fascinating to see, to, to listen to why all these people had come. There were a lot of interactive sessions for those of you who came. So we got to see that it really wasn't about health. It was about politics and global warming and climate and a lot of things that Michael Pollan captured just recently again in another New York Times magazine in his Farmer in Chief article, which was really interesting. Lots of different angles for food. Everybody eats three times or more a day. Everybody's got a little angle on some preference or some peeve that they have. It's fascinating. So a lot of really interactive stuff from Deborah Satz's session. So it really struck me how many um, fabulous resources have become available just in the last decade or so that don't talk about health at all, but they talk about food. So Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, was really not about the nutrient content of food, if you read it. It was about labor practices. It was about the horrible skills everybody gets when they sign up as a young pup to be working in McDonald's, or the horrible conditions working in a slaughterhouse. It was all about labor. It was about nutrition or nutrients. And Marion Nessel wrote a great book about the politics. Why in the heck does the USDA make our food pyramid and at the same time represent the cattleman industry, the dairy industry, and all of agriculture? Broccoli too, tomatoes too, but shouldn't that be a separate task in separate divisions of our government? That is nuts. Uh, the supersized movie, for those of you who saw it, was hilarious and entertaining and engaging. Uh, very provocative. He actually came to campus last year, uh, Morgan Spurlock, and he's on to another thing. He's trying to find Osama bin Laden or something like that. He actually wasn't really interested in nutrition. He was just trying to make something provocative. Uh, Mary Nessel wrote another book about how we get manipulated around the grocery store. I think a lot of people are becoming more familiar with that. Deborah decided to show Our Daily Bread, which is an, a fascinating movie with no monologue, no talking whatsoever. They just go from one massive factory food production place to another, and it's terrifying to see what it is. You really won't want to eat after you watch this movie. Michael Jacobson of the Center for Science and Public Interest came up with not one but six arguments for a greener diet. One was health, but the other ones were soil and water and air and stuff that's really crucial to our existence and less animal suffering. King Corn was one of the movies they showed. That was uh, very engaging. It was just scary to see how much effort they put into growing this corn that tasted horrible when they were done, but it's great for making high fructose corn syrup. If you haven't seen this, again, it's another very provocative movie that really pulls the farm bill into all this and how upset we should all be at the farm bill. Made a little progress this last time. We'll have another crack in five years. And Michael Pollan has really set the tone here. 
uh, as have the slow food folks. I don't know how many people went to San Francisco and saw the Victory Garden, but that was a fabulous event that we just had this fall. Farmers markets are doubling. Something really impressive is going on here. So that's really, really interesting. And so I think one of our tasks is to realize that there are Twinkies out there and we can get rid of them. We can eat whole foods. We can eat whole foods and do well, but if you can't get by with broccoli, edamame, tomatoes, and oatmeal, you might want to have a couple other choices. And there's, there's some good ones, and some are better than others, and sometimes you need more variety, and sometimes the store's out of what you want to buy, and sometimes the whole marketing thing just gets carried away with you, and you just, it sort of gets way out of hand, and uh, before you know it, you're really eating a lot of junk. How did all that happen? How do we eat so much junk? Because we know how to eat better than that. Why do we pick those things, you know? It's got to be a lot of the money that goes into this. It's so scary to hear that the, um, the five-a-day program for vegetables and fruits has less of a marketing budget than one candy bar of one candy company. Something like that, have you heard those? But we got those farmer's markets, you know, and they're doubling. That's good, that's a really good sign, but I don't know if that's enough. So it seems part of the solution to the omnivore's dilemma is to consider that there are really a lot of perspectives other than food that are very engaging they resonate with a lot of people. Food is a really hot topic right now. It seems to be a social movement. I mean, actually, what you've got to do here is you've got to change social norms, which seems like an enormous leap. But something is going on right now. I think social norms are on the verge of changing. So you could be the solution today. And I think it's not organic at all. I think it's sustainable. Organic's really lost. It's, uh, it's meaning these days. It's going to be something more like sustainable. It's going to be something more like Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, or my new favorite word, locavore. Not omnivore, not carnivore, but locavore, if you haven't heard that one yet. That's a fabulous term. Right? So it's really not just about food and health. It's about food and all these different perspectives. And, and whichever one floats your boat, go after that one. Because the fascinating thing is, no matter which one of those you pick, you still end up eating more vegetables. That's the great thing. That's what I'm starting to figure out. I try to do all these studies to show you how healthy it will be to eat more broccoli. And you don't really care because the McDonald's thing was too great, or you'd care, but your neighbors don't care. So uh, it seems like we've got to pull these other things in. So let me show you beyond you know, that, that whole range of things that we could be doing. There are some fabulous local grown solutions here. Deborah Satz couldn't think of a better topic for another year, so she's extended the ethics of food and the environment. We have a hero in our audience. I saw she snuck in. I know she was on the phone on another conference call doing something today to save the world, and, and Jessie Cool snuck in. Uh, she's been so far ahead of the curve. She's been doing this for decades, so uh, I thank her for her inspiration. I love her 80-20 approach. Have you heard this? 80% healthy, sustainable choices, and then have a little bit of fun. Come on, it's food. Okay, but you know, and maybe for you it's 75-25, but 80-20, that sounds pretty good. Try to make most of your choices pretty good. Um, we have another person in the audience today, maybe, I don't know if Liz Snyder made it, but Liz Snyder is a nutritional anthropologist working with a farmer at the Peterson Middle School in Sunnyvale, California. There was a high school that got downsized to a middle school a long time ago, and there's this incredible 11-acre plot of land lying fallow for 30 years on the edge of a middle school where they were going to build a soccer complex. And then some of the community complained that their kids couldn't afford the soccer complex. And a vocal school board member said, how about a farm? Not a garden, a farm. 
So they have put on an 11-acre organic farm where in five years they expect to be producing 80 to 120,000 pounds of organic produce a year, half of which will go to the school, half of which they'll sell at their farm stand to say economically viable. They broke ground. They irrigated this year. They've got their first crop. Some of the first sixth graders are out there getting their hands dirty. They're just walking across the school ground participating in this fabulous thing that's going to grow and grow and grow. So that's another local hero. And then I don't know if you realize this, so when Michael Pollan came to town, it was really fun to have Aaron Gaines come and speak. Aaron Gaines was an undergraduate who works on the farm at the farm. Did you know Stanford has a farm? They have a farm. She worked there. And she talked the provost into giving her a new position with Stanford Dining Services. She has a full-time position at the Stanford Dining Services as the Sustainable Foods Coordinator. That's a full-time position. That is heartwarming. She's actually trying to come up with a scale she's been telling me about to um, prioritize vendors, not just because it's organic, but organic and cruelty-free and sustainable and some other things. So they're coming up with this metric to prioritize their vendors, which is really exciting. And the guy she works for, Eric Montel, is very forward-thinking. He is actually serving grass-fed beef to Stanford students because by eliminating a middleman, he's able to get the grass-fed beef for the same price as the old beef by being very creative. He has a set budget to work with, and by being very creative and outgoing and progressive, he's doing that now, too. Tom Robinson and I are trying to figure out a way to study this, because this seems like a fabulous phenomenon to study. I'll just share this with you, because this was a lot of fun. We just submitted a grant proposal. Who knows if they'll think it's crazy or not. The NIH wanted to study young adults who were gaining weight too fast and see if they could help out. So we said, um, we will study folks uh, and just give them normal diet and exercise. And another group will give them diet and exercise, and we'll have them read these books and see these films and come and talk about them and see if we can engage them in social responsibility as a way to promote health, sort of a stealth intervention. This is Tom's favorite thing. Stealth intervention. Don't tell them it's good for them. Tell them it's the right thing to do and see if that resonates better than some of our health messages. And you know, I didn't ask Jessie yet, so I'm really putting a lot of pressure on her. But after they read these books, we're going to have local activists come and talk about what they do locally. So after they've read Michael Pollan or, or seen Inconvenient Truth, they know what to do locally to act on that. That's our idea. And here's again why this is such an exciting time. SB 1420 passed. They're putting calories on the food, right? In the fast food places. Proposition two. You know, I guess the vegans are mad at this guy who's doing this thing because it's not far enough, but the chicken people are freaking out because they won't be able to put him in those battery cages anymore. It's interesting. Ellen DeGeneres was, uh, interviewed him and Oprah interviewed him. These food topics are on the tip of everybody's tongue. It's really, really exciting. Right? So, so I was supposed to give this talk so I could help you choose. What is the solution to the omnivore's dilemma? Well, I want to show you Jackson's idea. He's my son. He's trying to get me to be a little more sophisticated with my slides and make them move a little. So, so just think about this. So for the whole beef question, so you've got to pick, you know? I'm going to have some beef tonight. And uh, there's that cow. And it's this kind of cow that grows up in this kind of place. So I've got this kind of choice where there's oh, there's all that stuff growing underneath them, and they're all caged in, and they're really not very happy, and they get antibiotics and the confined thing. Or you can go to Marin and get grass-fed beef, or go to California Ave Farmer's Market, and they got grass-fed beef. So, you know, so this is how to choose. Choose on some basis other than just what is next to you and cheap and easy. Or this is, this is going to be a huge stretch for you. I just made this up like the minute before I came here, OK? I want to see how this flies. 
Um, and, and I have to preface this with telling you that I've been a vegetarian for 25 years. No fish, no chicken, no meat, 25 years. So I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to give this a shot. What's better, beef or broccoli? I'm not even going to ask you because everybody's going to say broccoli, right? But think about this for a minute, okay? So this one's obvious. So you've got the cows all gathered in their pen there, and then you've got the local, organic, sustainable, in-season fresh broccoli. It's a no-brainer. Right? That one's a no-brainer. I can give you another scenario because food is really complicated. This broccoli was shipped from Chile, pesticide-laden, unsustainable, not in season, picked two weeks ago, versus grass-fed beef. <gasps> Which one would you eat then? Is the broccoli still better? You know, the broccoli, that's been held out as like the venerable uh, golden chalice type thing. Broccoli, there's nothing wrong with broccoli. But, you know, it really depends on the context. Is it sustainable or not? I'm not sure if I would actually eat that beef because I've been having fun with my 25-year experiment. But, you know, uh, someday I, it may come to this. If you're going to go get chocolate, how many of you know somebody who uh, grows chocolate locally, right? We don't know a lot of local chocolate growers, local coffee growers. I mean, they percolate it and they, they manufacture it here, but they have to get it from somewhere else. So free trade choices or sustainable or shade-grown or cooperatives or things like that. So there's a lot of ways that we can use this to choose, and almost all of them lead to a healthier diet without saying health. So this is my, uh, my coming out of the closet here and saying that I believe that health really hasn't worked as well as I had hoped. I really think that the solution to the omnivore's dilemma and all your choices is to try to figure out what the best choice is and give yourself a little slack do the Jesse Cool 80-20 thing, so maybe you don't know what fair trade is. Maybe you don't know where all your food came from. But if you spend a little time and change some habits, you could all make a really big dent here. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for sitting in today. I think it would be really impossible to say because you wouldn't know what other foods they were on. So a lot of times these things wash out in the rest of the diet. So if all else was equal, which would be extremely contrived, they would do worse with all that sodium. Some people are more sodium sensitive than others. You know, if you did hundreds or thousands of them, some of them would certainly become hypertensive because they're sodium sensitive. But in real life, when we do that reductionist study and we make all the diets the same, we take it out of the context that maybe in the context of their entire diet that got washed out. That effect got washed out because there are so many other variables going on. So it's an interesting intellectual question. It would be really hard to run that one. And then, you know, what is it? So here's, here's, what, here's the way I like to twist it a lot more. So if they're having the sodium, how are they having it? So is it soy and tamari on stir fry? Or is it uh, chicken and they're just uh, dumping all kinds of salt on top of the beef or the chicken or the processed food? You know, so that's two different kinds of sodium right there. So that, you know, the sodium itself isn't really that bad. It's what do you eat because of the sodium. Tons of chips and, and salty things. Yeah, the stuff that comes with it is often not that great. The idea was the 80-20, not just good foods, bad foods, but local and distance. So try to buy 80% of them local 
And then sure, there's some stuff you can't get, so go farther and farther out, but start closer to home. Is it a little more expensive? Buy the stuff that's a little more expensive. Support your local farmer, just like we're doing at the farmer's markets right now. I mean, part of this argument that Poland's putting forth is that it's insane, the cheap price of food. It's not sustainable. It's all going to run out eventually. Um, we can't transport it as cheaply anymore, and the soil's running out, so it's not sustainable. So buy local so it is sustainable, and pay the money up front instead of for the health care crisis or the oil dependency or the other things. So, I like that, 80-20, buy local, and then move outward from there. I control the exercise part of my whole slide by getting you to start your garden so that you're gardening every single day. Yeah, exercise is huge. I mean, that's why some of these people who are ultra-marathon runners can eat almost anything they want because they burn four or 5,000 calories a day. Uh, ex clearly, exercise is enormous. But it goes, a lot of it goes hand-in-hand hand with diet. Ah, and it depends where you are a locavore. So what if you're an Alaskan locavore, right? Or a Tahitian locavore? It really depends. And so then, you're right, then you got to... Where are you going to look? Are you going to buy canned? Or are you going to buy frozen? So we have a wealth of resources here in California. So we don't want to be elitist. Um, but there's always a choice. So let's say you show up at the store, and there's frozen, and there's canned. And you see if one, you know, I don't know how much time you have to investigate. I realize this could be long-term uh, long investment of time. But you find out a grower has good sustainable practices, and you keep buying that. And you find out the canned is full of salt and other things. And the frozen was fine. They froze it on site. It's been in storage. It came to you. You thought it's got most of the nutrients it had in it. So we still have those choices, even if it's not as local as across the street, or if it's the wrong season, it's the wrong time of year. But uh, again, uh, locally, what are these? I keep forgetting the name. What are the local boxes of food that you can get? The C, yeah, CSA. So they'll deliver whatever's local at that time of year. And sometimes the pickings are slim, but that's what's local. That is what is so compelling. It is, it is frightening, and it shows that when we study nutrition, I, I admit to this, we study a reductionist system. And they eat an indigenous diet, and they've been there for thousands of years. And it works for them. That's why those kinds of examples are so eye-opening. So you're right. Um, and when they move to another place, it can often really mess them up when they get out of, outside of their comfort zone of indigenous nights and eat the Western diet. So uh, the Pima Indians are one of the best examples. The majority of that population is diabetic and hugely overweight because they were built for one type of food system, and now they have an abundance that they don't know what to do with. Ah, people are trying to do this. There's a lot of folks out there trying to make more convenient food. Now, the taste part is fascinating. To get tastier food, you really need local food. Um, Tom Keller, right, the big chef, the French laundry guy, uh, he gave a great talk one time, or maybe he had this editorial in the paper. What was it where he, he said, you know, you're asking me what the new wave of cooking is going to be and how am I going to make everything taste better? And he said, I'm really stuck with the farmers I have. It's really going to start there. If they make me a fabulous tomato, I will make you a, a fabulous dish. But if they haven't grown a fabulous tomato, I can't really dress it up and make it fabulous. Convenience, yeah, I actually, I know some folks who are uh, going high-end and low-end and trying to deliver it quickly. So there's some really creative thought out there to make it more convenient. And 
again, it's a continuum. The thing that's really frustrating in nutrition is people often set this up as vegetarian carnivore, junk food eater or health nut. And it's really not that case. It's an entire continuum. And you mess up all day long today, and it's fine. You've got tomorrow to start all over. Right? So within that continuum, you know, pick something that's as tasty and as convenient again until it really gets under your skin that it was not right, it was the wrong choice. And then say, OK, I could make a better choice tomorrow. I'm going to get more local, more sustainable. And it's an ongoing process, and it seems like we can lift each other up this way. Yep, let's see. So my perspective on that would be this. If we really ate a local uh, diet, we really wouldn't need them because we evolved that way and we didn't have supplements when we evolved. But we don't live that way now. We don't do the hunter-gatherer thing. We don't live in the bush. So I think there's a place for those when we're not eating well. We could eat well. Uh, maybe not always, but we could eat a lot better than we're doing. So if you have access to a great diet, yeah, most of them really don't do anything as far as we can tell. So people have them to hedge their bets in case they didn't get everything they needed. But to be honest, that there's really not a lot of strong evidence for the benefits of supplements. And if anybody has followed the literature for the last decade, most of the trials on supplements have pretty much failed miserably um, long term. There's a couple examples. Iron, if you're anemic, that's OK. Calcium for osteoporosis probably still works, although you can argue on both sides of the coin. There's really not many that work. So eat food. It's really not very compelling to get it from a supplement, especially if it's an excuse not to eat well. Again, it's not a black and white thing. Whole Foods isn't perfect. Is it better than Safeway? Is it better than getting that box delivered to your house? So the other day, I was really looking for something that I needed. And I love to shop at Piazza's. It's actually a little more expensive than Whole Foods. But it's heartwarming. It looks a lot more local. And they really didn't have what I wanted. And I really wanted it. I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was fair trade dark chocolate. And I knew Whole Foods had fair trade dark chocolate. And Safeway didn't. So is that OK if I go to Whole Foods that day to get and spend the extra money on the fair trade dark chocolate? Yeah, that was my 20% day. Come on. That seemed fair. And that's why you know this is a, a long, ongoing conversation that we have to have. And if you noticed, they've felt pressured by this. I believe, and I'm not really totally familiar with this. Anybody jump in and help me if you want. They're recognizing that they, they took a wrong turn, and they're coming back. They're showing where their stuff comes from, not just that it was organic. They're now showing where it was grown. But I imagine in 11 years, Whole Food has grown tremendously, right? So it's not just one or two, it's dozens and dozens. And so the economies of scale are really important. So let's say you have a sustainable farmer, and your customers want it. And they make enough, and it sells out in five minutes. So where do you go next? You have to get more and more. So they go to the bigger places. And the bigger places aren't as sustainable. It's a lot of push and shove. We're really, it's, I mean, it's going to be a lot of educating ourselves on how to do this. That's why some of this agricultural stuff that's coming out about the monocultures that pollen's bringing out, and polyfarming and switching your crops, and um, getting the nutrients back in the soil without fertilizer, and doing it, uh, or working with economies of scale here, has a lot of different angles to take. Oh, if you saw in my graph that triglycerides went up, it wasn't very much. Triglycerides usually change this much, so a change of this much is pretty trivial metabolically. It wasn't a big triglyceride difference.
get all the cars and bikes out of the street and rip them up and plant gardens in the streets, and then they'll be very local. Yeah, and they did the Victory Garden in San Francisco. That was very impressive. And really, gardens are on the rise. Community gardens, have you seen? I mean, constantly now in the paper, there's urban gardens, community gardens, school gardens. The amount of food that you could actually produce in those is stunning. If we all grew a little food in our backyard. You know, I got a little three-year-old at home, and he loves going out to get green beans or cherry tomatoes or whatever it is, because he can pick them right there. That's how we need to get the kids realigned the way we used to eat. Gardens, gardens, gardens. And when we'll get that physical activity. Maybe you have to do a couple laps around the garden. I don't know. Yeah, fish oil really works. Fish oil, uh, one of the few supplements that really seems to be fascinating. Um, all you really need is a couple grams a day, which is not really much. So you might get 50 grams of fat a day. If you take three grams of fish oil a day, you can lower your triglycerides. You can improve your insulin sensitivity. It's fabulous stuff. But why not eat fish? But there's a good reason why maybe you shouldn't eat fish. Because if you eat too much fish, if we all eat twice a week, the seas will be depleted in a decade. There won't be any more fish or fish oil. right? And the things they make the fish oil out of are the ones we don't really want to eat so much. It's sardines and anchovies. Or maybe you like sardines and anchovies. But uh, fish oil is very promising. Uh, be a lot more fun if we would just eat more fish, and, and that would be have to be it. Now we got farmed fish, right? Now we got tilapia that's really not that great. Oh my God, it goes on and on and on. Ah, minimal caloric intake. We'd probably be a lot better off if we just ate less. I have not done that yet. Um, it's really a fascinating field to eat less. A lot of it came from natural experiments where people were shut off from food, and they're actually. Their health improved sometimes in some kind of ward or dramatic situation. I haven't done that, but it's a, it's, there's a lot of work in animals, and it's starting to move into humans, and there's some humans who are trying it. Anyway, I really hope as part of the solution to the omnivore's dilemma, this is really just one tiny little piece where you'll go out and talk more, think more, barter more, be more provocative, challenge yourself, plant some lettuce this winter, do something like that, and we'll have another conversation next year. Thanks for coming in today. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.